Yeah, so we are absolutely in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> clearly. Even for those of us who do this for a living, even for our community, which if you had asked any of us what we were most concerned about, it was either a novel influenza with pandemic potential or a novel coronavirus. We're in the middle of a thing that was exactly what we were worried about, but it still remains pretty surreal. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on our pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is Rebecca Katz a professor and director of the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University. She is a leading expert in global health diplomacy, global health security, and emerging infectious diseases. Rebecca was a consultant to the U.S. Department of State on matters related to the Biological Weapons Convention and emerging infectious disease threats from 2004 to 2019. She co-convened the first International Scientific Conference on Global Health Security in 2019, with the next edition planned in 2021. In this episode, we cover Rebecca's journey in becoming a leading expert in global health science and security, the history and significance of pandemics, the rise of COVID-19, its impact on life and society, the role of governance in the WHO in coordinating the global response, as well as what the future may hold. We also discuss research conducted by the Center for Global Health Science and Security in shaping public health policy. Please check out the show notes for more information on projects Rebecca is leading and for ways to get involved. We always like hearing about sort of, you know, the genesis and, and the evolution. So tell us about your childhood, how you grew up, what's <laughs> the evolution until today, sort of you developing your interest for research, policy, health science, and so forth. Wow. Okay. So my life story in a few minutes. I was raised in a public health family. In fact, I'm the only non-clinician in my immediate family, including my siblings. My father at one point ran the blood supply for the Red Cross during HIV. And so it was very, very involved in all the policy decisions around, um, you know, who could donate blood, is blood supply contaminated. And my mom, who was a, a nurse by training, worked, spent 30 years working for Tony Fauci, whose name everybody now knows, at NIH and uh, initially working in HIV AIDS and then for clinicaltrials.gov, helping to set that up, and then back doing some more biodefense-related work for NIH. So that was the world I grew up in. My family thought it was a little odd that I was not interested in being a clinician and kind of humored my interest in public health more than anything else. It was all very cute when I got my first master's degree. But, but that was my world. And I went off to college, and I I focused on, I was social science. I was international relations, poli-sci, econ. I really thought I wanted to do health economics. That was the space that I, I thought I would occupy. 
And I was particularly interested in improving health in resource-poor environments. Part of it was as soon as I was basically old enough to travel by myself, I started traveling. I would get a bug and just needed to be on a plane and go somewhere. And so, you know, as soon as I figured out how I could study abroad for high school, I did. I, I left the country every couple of years because I just got antsy, but had a lot of really amazing experiences living and working and studying in a lot of different environments. I really thought I wanted to do health economics. I, I know I'm talking to folks who, who work in finance, but yeah, there's a lot of math in a PhD in econ. And I didn't love the math enough. So I decided to, to veer off a bit and thought I would go for a master's in public health focused in, um, it was still at the time called international health, which is now called global. But before I was going to go off and do that, again, I, I had a bug. I was able, I was able to get a graduation gift out of my parents and a, um, a, a round trip ticket. I went and I was working in maternal child health clinics in Southern India for the year after I graduated college great year work planned out. I was going to spend um, first couple of months. I was working at a charity hospital in um, a place called Shringeri in the, a, a very rural hospital. And then I was at, based at St. John's Medical College in Bangalore. And I was a volunteer in the maternal child health clinics in the rural villages. And I was supposed to do that for the first six months. And then I was, had arranged to spend the last six months working in, um, as a volunteer for Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Yeah, she was still around. And, you know, while I'm in India, I'm applying for master's in public health programs. And But while I'm there, I, I got quite ill. The bug that I caught, I ended up having to fly home after, uh, I guess, about four and a half months. The disease that I caught, which is endemic in the, the part of India I was living in, turned out to be the first agent ever weaponized by the U.S. as part of our offensive biological weapons program in the early 50s. And, you know, I think anybody who's had a, a really a deep experience with the U.S. healthcare system understands that you kind of have to become an expert in your own disease, particularly if you have something that, that's not well understood or well known by folks. So in the process of becoming an expert in my own disease, I discovered this body of literature from the bioweapons world. I'd never heard of this stuff before. This was the mid-90s. And so here I was, I'm, I'm, I'm studying epidemiology, I'm discovering epidemiology for the first time in my master's program. I have my own disease, this very odd dichotomy of learning how to think like a public health professional. At the same time, I myself am a patient, which is a, a different way of thinking. So I, you know, I would get, I wake up in the morning, I go get my like IV antibiotics, and then I would like sit in the back of the lecture hall so I could like run out and throw up. It was really very elegant. And then, um, but learning to think on population scale, and so I'm learning about epidemiology. I'm, I'm falling in love with infectious disease epi. At the same time, I'm getting really smart on this literature and this area of biological warfare, which I had never heard of before, which kind of brought in all my social science background from undergrad. And that really, you know, we talk a lot about the accidental career, but that's really kind of what set me off. I became really fascinated in, in this intersection between disease and security at a time when that was not terribly popular within the public health community to even mention that. And, and there was no like real jobs that I knew of or understood in that space. So it was really very much kind of my hobby to think about these things. Graduated from my master's, I got a job in public health, but really couldn't shake this interest. So after a couple of years applied to go back to do my PhD, I had wanted to do it in infectious disease epidemiology, but I was quite keen on studying this disease and security intersect. 
and the schools of public health at the time were, were not the least bit interested in that. So I got a lot of, we like you, but you know, not a dissertation committee is never going to buy this. <laughs> do you want to work on Parkinson's? And I kind of stuck to what I really wanted to do. And I ended up following the, the guy who had been the dean at the School of Public Health, where I'd done my master's, who had moved on to, to Princeton and, and ended up following him. So at my doctoral work is out of the public policy school, which I believe this week been renamed no longer the Woodrow Wilson School. And, and everyone kind of humored me. But while I was there was 9-11 after, after my first year. So I, and then the anthrax attacks and suddenly the, the world shifted in, in many ways but also in kind of this understanding and beginning the evolution of the intersect between disease and security. It began really about a 20-year history for me in studying this, the threats of pandemics and what became known as global health security, but initially was really um, public health emergency preparedness. The nomenclature has, made, has changed over, the, over two decades. But that was really kind of, I guess, the background of where I, how I got where I am. I think I, I ended up working with the U.S. government I wasn't terribly interested in academia because it wasn't really where interesting things were happening in the space. But while I was working for the U.S. Department of State, one of my mentor for my master's program had moved to, to George Washington University and asked, you know, hey, do you want to do some teaching for me? I'm like, yeah, sure, that'll be great. Then I, you know, ended up getting a faculty position there and it's all been kind of from, from there. And then about four years ago, I moved the entire research team that I had been building over to Georgetown University and, and then established a center. So that, that's, I think, my, my life story. That's a fascinating story and, and background. Let's shift gears slightly. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we talk about the specific pandemic, what is a pandemic and why do pandemics matter? Hmm. It's a, it's a great question. You know, there is a very technical definition for what is a pandemic, which is much less important to, than the question of why does it matter. Within public health and epidemiology, we have definitions for what's, a, what's an outbreak, what's an epidemic, what is endemic, and then what is a pandemic. The official definition for a pandemic is this notion that you would have communicable disease that is in more than two or more regions based off of the WHO definitions of regions around the world. But the more important question is, why does it matter? And I think many of us have been, I want to say like, you know, screaming from mountaintops, but it's, it's you know, we've been we're really quite concerned about the, the possibility of a pandemic for a long time because we see in these in regularly occurring infectious disease outbreaks around the world, and usually localized outbreaks, first the, the impact of morbidity and mortality. I mean, so people, people getting sick and dying, but also the, the second order impacts and what it can do to destabilize communities, what it does to the, the economy and, and even to security aspects. Usually these, these outbreaks have been really small, right? Or even ones that we wouldn't consider small, but still regional, like Ebola, West Africa. We look at these and we, we study them and we do our best to develop better practices for faster prevention, detection, and response. How do we save more lives? But we also knew that all the systems that we were thinking about and trying to build and developing policies for 
would be strained by something that would have pandemic potential or a full-on pandemic. So I think why does it matter is that pandemics matter because we're, we're seeing this every day. I, mean, I, I used to spend my entire semesters trying to teach why does a pandemic matter and still get to the end of 14 weeks and have students kind of stare at me blankly like, yeah, that's really nice, but it's not, I, I, I don't get what you're talking about. I mean, I think the, and, and we saw that in the, maybe the hesitations and decision-making in the, the first months of this calendar year, because it was so hard to grasp the imagination of people who had never gone through a, a major infectious disease event before. And I think what we're seeing right now is that clearly this is a, a disease that has impacted every sector of society all over the world. Not evenly, of course, and particularly not evenly now as we're seeing the results of different national level response capacity. But it was what we always knew, always feared, and always modeled that if you had a global pandemic of particularly of a respiratory virus that we imagine beyond the, the clear impact on mobility and mortality, it would also impact economies and foreign relations and the geopolitical shifts. I mean, everything that we are currently seeing was all predicted couple of things. Speaking about Ebola, what is the recent history of pandemics? And when it relates to COVID-19, what is the state of COVID-19 today? Well, we're really careful with the word pandemic, right? So the last time a pandemic was declared was for H1N1 in 2009. Thankfully, while it was a disease that was transmitted easily, it didn't kill as many people. We've called previous influenza outbreaks pandemics. And one of the things we watch very carefully are, is the evolution of, of new strains of influenza with pandemic potential. Really, the last time we saw anything like what we're seeing now was about 100 years ago in 1918, 1919 for the Spanish influenza. And clearly, given that name, but has the history of why it was even called that. So we really haven't seen anything at the scale of what we are looking at right now in about 100 years. And that, remember, this was at a time where transoceanic travel was by boat. So, you know, you had a virus that spread around the world a couple of times, but at a time when there was not nearly as much travel. On the other hand, they didn't have the type of testing and treatment capacity and supportive care that we do today. So really, that's the comparison right now. So it's really hard to look back and be like, well, I don't know, what was our plan in you know, 1919 for Philadelphia? Like, that's it's not terribly useful for today, but it is instructive in looking at what went right and what went wrong. And many folks have gone back to that pandemic to look particularly at some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions and the effectiveness of them. But we do see infectious disease outbreaks all the time. The WHO still keeps track, but they receive thousands of signals every single month on infectious disease events going on in the world. There's usually about 300 a month that they would follow up on and do the equivalent of a, about one field investigation every single day. And if they're doing a field investigation, it means that that's something where the event is significant enough that it may have overwhelmed the capacity of the national government or that it's just you know confusing and they want a little bit of assistance. We see lots and lots and lots of infectious disease events. We've had approximately 40 emerging infectious diseases in the last few decades. Some really worrisome, some, some less so. 
We've seen what we call public health emergencies of international concern. So we've seen Zika, uh, Ebola DRC, Ebola West Africa. We've seen the emergence of SARS in 2002-2003, the emergence of MERS in 2012, and that can stays with us. So we have infectious disease threats again all the time. In addition to several strains of influenza with possible pandemic potential that we monitor really closely but we've been very thankful and lucky that they haven't had sustained human disease and transmission. All this stuff is always, it's always around. There's a community of people who monitor all of this very carefully and, a, and an infrastructure and architecture that's been put in place to try to do that. And with regards to the state of COVID-19, how would you characterize that? Yeah, so we are absolutely in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> clearly. Even for those of us who do this for a living, even for our community, which if you had asked any of us what we were most concerned about, it was either a novel influenza with pandemic potential or a novel coronavirus. We're in the middle of a thing that was exactly what we were worried about, but it still remains pretty surreal. We are now at what, like over 11, almost 11 and a half million cases around the world, over half a million deaths. I don't see this ending anytime soon. We don't currently have a medical countermeasure. When we do have an effective medical countermeasure, there's then going to be all sorts of additional challenges of how do we distribute it equitably, safely. So we, we now have a virus that we're going to be dealing with for quite a long time. And as we're seeing right now, different governments have handled the virus very differently. You have some countries around the world that are almost back to, I don't want to call it normal, but a new normal. And you have other countries, including the United States, that are neck deep in the outbreak. And based off of what I see when I look outside, it's not going to change anytime soon. I mean, we, we have at least another couple of months of being really in challenging situations. Continuing on that theme, sort of response, what stakeholders can do, and there are many levels to this question. You have the individual citizen, you have governments community leaders, organizations, businesses, and so forth. How do you think about principles in responding to a pandemic? To me, the response is at multiple different levels. There's one, a coordinated message from a government is critical because I don't think we can expect people to just know what to do and when. But right now, we're looking at a couple of things. One, it is a question of, of governance. So are decision makers willing to put the necessary regulations in place? Are they prepared or preparing to be able to provide sufficient capacity for the public health function, for testing, for tracing, for isolation, for supporting people who are going through all of these processes, for building up sufficient supply chain management, for building up manufacturing capacity, for ensuring that there is sufficient amount of personal protective equipment for the people who require it, for putting in place the policies that enable people to take the appropriate behaviors, like sick leave, like, you know, making sure that you're not evicted if you are being asked to stay home. There's a lot of things that have to happen on the governance side. And then on the individual level, it's adhering to guidance. As guidance evolves, and to be clear, in any emerging infectious disease, we learn, we're building the plane as we fly it. Like we, we learn as we go, and that 
guidance that comes out in January might be different than guidance that comes out in May and not due to any kind of conspiracy theory, but because we're learning more. So I think on the individual side, it's, it's adhering to that guidance. And right now, what that means is wear a mask. Please wear a mask. Wear a mask. <laughs> wear a mask. Wear, wear some type of face covering. Maintain physical distance. Avoid crowded environments. Right now, what we're seeing is, you know, better, better to avoid indoor, better to be outdoors than indoors, to practice good hand hygiene, to do environmental decontamination. So all of these things. And I think what's been really challenging is that almost all the planning for pandemics and for emerging infectious disease response had been done at the federal level. And we had actually been involved in efforts for a number of years to work with mayors around the world to think about what their what their responsibilities would be in a pandemic, but also how to provide them with the, an understanding what the threat was and well start to develop some tools. This was really nascent work. And most decision makers at the, the state and the local level weren't thinking about their role in the absence of a federal response was just not something that was done. It wasn't resourced. It wasn't exercised. I think that there's a lot of challenge right now in trying to figure out how to get state and local officials up to speed and being able to manage response. There are legal issues. Can Massachusetts actually quarantine anybody from Florida? And how do you do that? We're talking about enforcing people wear masks, but it's not a great time for enforcement in this country right now. So what does that look like? I think there's a lot of folks who are waking up and realizing that public health is actually a police power and that there's, depending on what state you're in, there are tremendous amount of authorities that the public health department has. I know that most of the American public had no idea that they could be forced into a quarantine or put in prison. I mean, like there, there's, there's just not something people were cognizant of because public health tended not to use that authority ever. So I think we're in a really complicated position at the moment. Do you think the rate of learning is fast enough? Well, that, I think there's two questions. There's a question of how fast the American public is learning or the global population is learning about pandemics and how fast our decision makers are learning and acting. I think anybody who is a public health professional or an epidemiologist at the moment is struggling with lots of people from lots of different disciplines declaring that they know more. So I had said early on that I thought one of the, the very best things that could happen would be that given that every single smart person in the entire world is singly focused on this pandemic, that my hope was that we were going to see incredible innovation and the ability to bring the best of every discipline into this space. And I think in some ways we're starting to see that and it's really exciting and it's encouraging. And, you know, again, this has been an area that people have not been terribly interested in. And we have, even myself, like I be dragging folks from other departments in my university to be like, please, I need like somebody with deep economic expertise to help me with this type of analysis. And like, no, I'm not really interested. Like at least now everybody's interested, you know, so we're seeing some really cool innovation happening. But we also have the challenge of people who are like, well, I can do math. Therefore, every epidemiologist doesn't clearly doesn't understand math. And, and I think that there's, there's a balance there because a lot, of, a lot of what we do, a lot of what we talk about is based off of years and years of, of training and experience and nuance. So back to your question of like, what's the learning curve look like? I think a lot of people have quickly learned a lot of terms. Think about even teaching in the fall. 
I've been trying to figure out, do I, do I even have to start with like, what's an epi curve anymore? Everybody reads the news, they see, they see the curve. And I'm like, you know, you know, but you know, maybe this is the year that I like actually doubled down on the basics and I have to almost break bad habits and reteach everything. <laughs> there's a balance. I think that people are getting smart. The, there's language that's now the everybody is using. I think that there remains a challenge. This is on the decision maker front. This is, this is decision making un, under uncertainty and that's hard. And that's hard. It's hard to get out in front of. It's hard to do that if you are a political leader and you have lots of different stakeholders and folks that you are trying to to placate. So I think that there a lot of people have learned a lot very quickly, but also it's not fair. I've spent a lot of time working with private industry over the last couple of months. And to their credit, I, in a time when, when there hasn't been much government leadership, large private companies have really stepped up and I feel are, are in some ways really leading the way in response. But it's also unfair because I, I'm, I've been working with the head of a, of, a, of a resort and he's calling with detailed questions about PCR tests or, you know, the, the EPA list and this type of disinfectant versus this, this other one or exactly how many feet apart. I mean, this is like really deep technical questions that as smart as all of these industry leaders are, nobody ever trained them to do this. <laughs> so, but yet they've had to step in and get really smart really quickly on some pretty complicated areas of science, of epidemiology, of public health, of even just understanding the structures and who does what and what's the local public health department supposed to be doing. And here's the list of stuff they should be doing. But then do we know that if they're still using rotary phones or not? I mean, like, it's really... It's been fascinating to see folks step up, but also to acknowledge that there continues to be a lot of asymmetric information too. When you go see your doctor, it's, you're, you're, you're depending on your clinician to, to know more, right? And it's not necessarily an even relationship. And that's the same way with a lot that's going on right now, but add on top of that marketing. So I've had folks who come to me and say, well, here's a brochure. And these folks say that this disinfectant will kill COVID for 80 years. Therefore, I should go with it. But not understanding that just because somebody uses like deep, you know, interesting technical terms, that it's not the same thing as saying you have New York's number one best pizza. It really is pure marketing. So folks are really struggling with trying to understand like what they need to know how to interpret the material that's being put in front of them. Yeah. And, and one other, one element of a pandemic as it relates to a lot of stakeholders is understanding how it's developing. And you have experience in modeling and predicting pandemics, for example, with covidactnow.org, where you're an advisor. How do you think about constructing such models? I have to say, I moved a little bit away from modeling right now because we, we have actual data from around the world and we can open our doors, look outside and see what's happening. I think there's a lot of decisions that could be made on, on the actual data as opposed to kind of guessing what the future looks like. But I think that this is also a space that there are literally textbooks on how to do this. This is a defined discipline and your models are something people have been doing for a decade or so. There is a lot of work. Now, that the COVID Act Now team is actually fascinating. It's, it's a group of mostly tech industry folks who are really smart, but hadn't had much 
experience in the, again, this public health epidemiology side. When we first got involved, it was because we, we saw this really great website that they put together and it was so clearly communicated and we were really excited about the, as I mentioned before, kind of the innovation from different sectors. But then when we peeled back a layer and we started looking at the model that they had been using, we're like, well, this doesn't actually conform with any of the standard, you know, epi and modeling practices we, as we understand them. They were quite open to having us kind of come on board and be part of a discussion to help them rebuild their model and make sure that it conforms to some of the, the tried and true parts of, of epi and modeling. Really mingling of multidisciplines. Yes. I mean, well, that's the whole idea. And this has always been a multidisciplinary space. The idea is that no one discipline can manage, as, as we're seeing right now, the pandemics are complex, right? I mean, that's, it, it impacts every sector of society. You really do need people with many different types of disciplinary training trying to address the problem. And one of the things that we did in June 2019, just about a year ago, we actually, uh, along with um, Partner in Crime from the University of Sydney in Australia, we convened the first ever international scientific conference on global health security. And we brought about 900 people from around the world and in an effort to actually start to codify a community of practice. We knew that there were people all over the world who were kind of looking at this. We knew the people we knew. We didn't know the folks that we didn't know. So the idea behind doing this was actually to start bringing people together to bring all these not just different disciplines together, but people from lots of different types of countries and societies with different challenges uh, to learn from each other and to figure out how to best communicate what their research findings were to decision makers. And because of that, we've actually also now established, based off the ask from that conference, we've now established the first professional society that we've called Global Health Security Network with the same idea is bringing people with different expertise together to amplify and to build off of each other's message. What are the criteria for measuring the response to the pandemic? So in the global health security space for the last 10 years or so, there has been an effort to try to come up with a set of metrics for assessing prevention, detection, and response capacity. Many of those were tied to the World Health Organization and to the International Health Regulation. There was something called the International Health Regulations Monitoring Framework. There was a, a self-assessment tool that was used by every country. There was also something called the Joint External Evaluation. About 100 countries had they called JEE scores. There was, uh, and then there were multiple NGO and academic efforts to try to score and measure preparedness and response. So there was the, the Global Health Security Index. There was a group that the Epidemic Preparedness Index, numerous different efforts. Now, none of these have actually accurately predicted the capacity of countries to effectively respond to COVID, in part because very few of these indices looked at governance, and governance has become such a critical component of how countries are doing, more so than their laboratory capacity or, you know, the you know, whether what their electronic disease surveillance system looks like. That gets us back to the question of how do we measure response? At a very basic notion, you can look at morbidity and mortality. How many people are sick? How many people are dying? 
do you even have the capacity to measure that effectively? Based off of like what your tested capacity is, how many people do you actually think are sick or dying? What is the impact on the rest of your healthcare systems? Have you shut everything down so much that nobody can get treatment for cancer? So what does your excess mortality look like is another question. Clearly, the response capacity is now tied to your economy. You know, one measure would be, are you able to effectively continue society? <laughs> this is, again, where we get back to this issue of different disciplines. Well, I fully expect I'm going to be reading dissertations for, for the next 10 years on every piece of what's happened over the last couple of months, because an entire dissertation could look at capturing response in terms of what we do for long-term educational goals. So if you close schools and you keep them closed for a really long time, are you setting back an entire generation of students? The, the question of how do we measure response is quite complicated and it goes just beyond the public health capacity but and, and lives lost or what long-term morbidity looks like, but it really gets into the ability to minimize the impact on every other sector of society and also what resilience of your population and your community looks like. Yeah, I can imagine it's very tough to get a composite score, which would include... Well, and we tried, right? You could get a... There were... There's, there's school... Everybody has a score. There's a lot of scores out there. But I think the, the challenge is really like, what are we measuring? And to be perfectly frank, anybody who spent any decent amount of time with any of these indices knew that they weren't perfect, but they were what we had. Let's maybe think about this from an international point of view, speaking of measuring the response to COVID-19. How do you think about, or how would you score WHO thus far? It's a really complicated question. Just like a composite score isn't terribly informative on a national response to COVID, I'm not sure scoring the WHO is helpful. I think that there's some challenges that they've faced that are just part of, of their being. Uh, they are a member state organization. There are a lot of politics that are involved in the organization, and that's part of who they are and what, and what they do. Addressing where their hands are tied and what they can do and what they can't do is really critical. And these are powers that have been given to them or taken away from them by the member states themselves. I think that they have been extremely good about making sure that they are regularly communicating with the world. The regular press conferences that they do where Dr. Tedros, Dr. Ryan, Dr. Ben Kirkhoff are all sitting there answering questions for hours sometimes every day has been critical. There is a, a massive effort underway to try to collect the evolving evidence base to analyze it and to feed it back out to the member states. They are trying to coordinate the clinical trials that are happening all over the world for both antivirals and for vaccines and are integral in the conversations that are happening right now to think about when there is an eventual full medical countermeasure, how to prioritize distribution around the world. So I think on that front, they're doing what they can do. I think there's a lot of questions that are still going to be answered around information sharing. There's a lot of challenges that have been raised to the governance regime that we had in place. We have um, the international health regulations where our governing international agreement treaty for emerging infectious diseases and what global governance of disease looks like. It includes language on other measures and travel and trade restrictions, and those were uniformly ignored. 
by basically every party to the treaty. And that, I think, at just as one example, gets at the balance between global governance and national sovereignty, which has not been solved. And it's going to need some really careful examination as we think about what type of governance regimes we need to build or rebuild going forward. I think it's a really important question to think about, especially from the perspective of um, what can be improved on moving forward, sort of learning from the past. And speaking of kind of learning from the past, you mentioned first order and second order effects earlier on. And with that as a backdrop, where do we go from here? What do you think are implications on a first order, second order, maybe third order basis as well on, for example, impact to life, healthcare, mobility, domestic, national cooperation. You penned or at least commented on what this pandemic might mean for urban life. And yep. I believe that was the foreign policy magazine. Mm-hmm. How do you think about the effects of COVID-19 on various parts of our existence? The question is critical. And it there is an opportunity to be very thoughtful about not only how the pandemic has been impacting all of these different parts of our society, but the opportunities to make changes, to study what the, the patterns might look like going forward. Let me say this with a caveat. I've been in this space for a really long time, and we often talk about the cycle of panic to neglect, that we would see an outbreak, everyone would get really, I don't want to say excited, but really engaged. And wow, this is so important. And we're going to make all these changes and all this stuff is going to happen. And then within a certain period of time, we fell right back into the neglect stage. I have to believe that just the, again, the order of magnitude that we're dealing with for this pandemic, that we might have a longer period of time in the panic stage and and the opportunity to address it. But I also been around a little bit too long that I fear that we will eventually get back to that neglect stage. I think thinking about what we can do during the panic period, the opportunity where we can maybe start to make real change, there's a a huge spectrum of things from kind of the superficial band-aids that we can put on things to how we think about the, the true systemic changes that are going to be required. And even just taking the thought, you are three times more likely to get COVID and I believe twice as likely to be hospitalized if you are African-American or Latina in this country. People who study access to care, people who study socioeconomic differences in health outcomes know this, right? So we, we know that people who are minority communities have less access to care, that they have less access to healthy food, that that might lead to more diabetes or more comorbidities within the community that then impacts your outcomes with COVID. They might have jobs that require them to get on public transportation and put themselves at risk and be in contact with other people and expose the virus when other communities have the luxury, even if they don't like it, have the luxury to shelter in place and stay at home. I think that your question is really broad. We have major systemic issues that we we could take this opportunity to get at. We could get at the issue of sick leave. The fact that many people don't have the choice of staying home or going to work. 
And can we build in the ability for somebody to, if they are sick, if they're clearly able to transmit a communicable disease, that we, we enable them to actually stay at home? How are people able to feed their families? So there's really kind of critical issues. I think you also raised the question of, around urban living. You know, a whole bunch of people who were basically locked down in their 600-foot apartments and lost access to all the things that make cities so vibrant and so attractive to people to live in. So the ability to meet people, to intermingle, to have access to culture, and even just to go to the corner coffee shop and to be around folks, to sit in the office with the other people and bounce ideas off them because that's the place that you've brought all these people together. All of that disappeared. And I think it's made a lot of people rethink. I think a lot of workplaces are rethinking how much of their work can and should be done remotely, even post-outbreak. And, and there's a lot of study on this. You can look at productivity. You can look at, there, I mean, all, all the different factors that folks look at. There, I expect that there may be some changes just in how workplaces function. Uh, I think there might be opportunities where people who may have at one point been attracted to living in a city are suddenly like, well, I don't, I don't know if that attraction still holds. I think you probably have a lot of families living in urban environments who that decision making is also being impacted. And maybe we'll really great broadband all over rural communities now. Because um, if, if your option is that you can go, you know, depending on your personality and sit in a cabin in the woods, and as long as your internet's good, and you're productive, then you, you have all the benefits of being able, if you are somebody who wants to sit in a cabin in the woods, <laughs> to be able to function. I think we'll see some societal changes. I don't know how long they'll last, though. Because again, I, I've been around too long. I've seen the cycle. I've seen things kind of shift back on a pendulum. How do you think about superimposing a time frame on a resolution or a potential resolution for COVID-19? Oh, well, I mean, how do we define resolution? I, I think if you are a, a country that has clearly responded effectively, if you are a, an island nation like New Zealand and you are looking at case counts of, of zero or maybe one based off of a traveler who didn't follow the quarantine perfectly and then you're able to... to Step down on that. I mean, your your resolution is now. You've basically gone back to life as you know it, just without international travel. And now you have countries that are in similar situations that are creating these travel bubbles. In other parts of the world, like the United States, we are going to be living with this virus for a long time. And my colleagues noted that at right now, right now, like today, we have approximately one million people who are contagious walking around with COVID in our country. One million. We are really good at criticizing Australia for locking down an entire province based off of a couple of dozen cases. We have, I mean, we, our numbers are, are really totally different. So the question of like, what does resolution look like in the United States it, right now, based off of the, the current situation is very different right now. So that conversation right now is either it's focused on a medical countermeasure and that gets at when are we going to have a vaccine? My best guess on this, you know, there, there's over a hundred different vaccine candidates that are currently being explored. There's about a dozen that are currently in human clinical trials around the world. Things are moving at a pace that is unheard of. 
I think that there probably will be a vaccine candidate sometime around the end of the year, beginning of 21. If I don't know how safe or effective that vaccine candidate will be. I think it is probably more likely that we are looking at about this time next year before there is a vaccine candidate that has maybe a better, more acceptable track record for safety and efficacy and something that can be manufactured and distributed at a scale that the general population might be able to get it. And even that would be a tremendous accomplishment if there is a vaccine candidate that you and I are are sticking our arms out for by next summer. Like to focus on Center for Global Health Science and Security, which you're running at Georgetown. Yeah. It's an impressive organization, for sure, just learning about it over the last handful of weeks. Tell us about your work there, mission, yeah. top projects, and in particular, how can listeners support and get involved? So we set up the Center for Global Health Science and Security about four years ago at Georgetown. I, I moved our entire research team over. So we didn't start from scratch. We had about 10 years of work before that. We are now about seven faculty, five or six full-time staff. And then at the moment, over 20 students who are supporting our research efforts. And we're a policy shop at the core. So we are a multidisciplinary team, people coming from all different sorts of, of backgrounds that come together to be able to support to support decision makers in the U.S. and around the world and how to prevent, detect, and respond to public health emergencies. This is what we've been doing for a long time. We have a really wide-ranging portfolio. There are some folks in the center who spend a lot of time or had been spending a lot of time doing workshops around the world for governments um, from everything from how to respond to a deliberate biological event to cross-border disease surveillance to the combination of law enforcement and public health. We work with a group called Talis Analytics who helps us on all of our kind of data visualization and and website tools. Um, And so we've been putting together a lot of tools that user-friendly tools community could use everything from how to cost your public health infrastructure. So we have a tool that in about an hour will fully cost your public health infrastructure required under the international health regulations. And we make everything fully available. There's a really nice user interface, both for English and French, but we also have some users like the World Bank, for example, would just download the backend spreadsheet and use those for their calculations. So we make everything publicly available. We have tools that look at stakeholders for deliberate biological events. We have another tool that we published, I believe, in Lancet that looks at just kind of the range of biological scenarios that are out there and just kind of how complex this space is. We do an insane amount of writing. So we we make a lot of words and and try to publish in uh, most published in peer review press, but in publications, but also how we disseminate directly to decision makers. We do a lot of service, a lot of teaching. And for COVID response, we've been involved in a variety of different efforts from direct consultation to governments, to mayors, to governors, to industry, so very much on the operational component, to writing and deep thinking on global governance of disease and what regimes should and could look like. And we have contributed to a series of online tools. So you mentioned the COVID Act Now, which we've been privileged to be able to provide some of the epidemiologic 
support and guidance on. We have another tool that we work on called COVID Local, which is frontline guides to decision makers at the local level. And also in that included a series of metrics that could be used for phase reopening and closing, and then been part of an effort that of a whole bunch of academic and NGOs who have come together to ensure that we have some convergence around of all the metrics that we came up with independently to for a clear message back to those decision makers and pulled in on some work that also has now been picked up by NPR. And then finally, we have a new tool that we call COVID AMP, stands for Analysis and Mapping of Policies. And this is where we have a small army of students, including law students, who are tracking and coding all of the policies that are coming out across the country. And now we're building out the global piece of that. The idea is for two things. There's one, there's pieces on that that, that show it on a map. It maps to some modeling work where you can see the, the intervention and how that policy impacts the course of disease. And it's two things. It's one, the decision makers can kind of have some facility with it and, and be able to see what's happening in real time but also creating the evidence base so that researchers can go back and study this. And that's actually something that the center is really dedicated to. We curate a whole bunch of different data sets, including for the last couple of years, uh, we've been tracking the flow of funding in health security around the world with about 80,000 data points in it, because a lot of this was being done on anecdotal information, on best guess, on saying like, I don't know, I think I should fund a laboratory in Kenya, but like what's the evidence behind it? So we really work hard on curating the data so that we can then have an evidence base for the recommendations to decision makers as we go forward so that as we build the field, we can actually do so with more evidence. That's a lot of the work that we've been involved in recently. And uh, we also have, we have vets, we have folks, disease ecologists, we have people looking at the species spillover, um, so looking at other viruses that might be spilling over from bats and other species into humans. We support emergency operations centers. So it's a really broad range of activity. I think on the question of how people can get involved, one, I invite anybody to go to our website. It's GHSS for Global Health Science and Security Georgetown.edu to, to spend some time on the website to take a look at who we are and what we do. We are soft money research center. So we always need financial support. And that ranges. It's anything from, you know, there is a big like donate here button on the website. It's anything from supporting students, a couple thousand dollars for me to have a full-time student for a summer who's able to then add a couple more counties to our, our analyses, as well as the opportunities for them to get involved in research. It's supporting the, the work that we're doing with mayors around the world. It's everything to support. So we have those, like we have $100 for a research seminar and, you know, if we're ever back in the office again to buy the coffee for it to the, here's the $30 million to endow the center or chairs for all the faculty. I think one of the largest challenges we had is because we are a soft money center, it was really hard for me to pull the faculty onto COVID immediately because we were so busy finishing up contract work or, or even still engaged with contract work. I think uh, what, what this is we always knew it, but like the, the critical importance is of having protected time to be able to quickly pivot to whatever the ask is. Thankfully, we, we've been able to do that over the last couple of months. Again, a lot of it I use through our students because they're, they're cheaper and easier. So, you know, we got a request from New York City, the contact tracing group, where we've been kind of dropping everything to help them pull together some data. So being able to do that and be able to lend our expertise, I think is critical. On the other hand, we're also looking for, always looking for research partners too. So one of the ways to get people engaged is if you go onto the COVID AMP site, you'll see the policies we're tracking. 
if there is something that you are interested in and we're not tracking it yet, to let us know. Because it's often, I'm not much of an academic for doing stuff that nobody will look at. So we we try to make sure that what we are doing is actually um, useful to the community, however we define that community. So if there are challenges or questions that people have, we have opportunities to build that in to how we look at things. So we, again, we, we look for we look for research partners at the same time we look for just philanthropic support to or to ideas. I think you alluded to this in your previous answer also. Technology is very near and dear to us. How can technology aid the response for COVID-19 even more than what it may have done so far? This is one of those areas where this is where the communities have to come together. I'm the first to say what I do and don't understand. What I think the entire world is now realizing that we have an antiquated data architecture for how we deal with public health. How do we improve that? How do we make sure that we have an easier way to share information, to make sure that people have access to epidemiologic line data? How do we, in a way that protects uh, privacy, uh, use technology for contact tracing? How do we amplify the workforce? And then there's clearly, you know, the entire scientific advancement space and how to use AI and other technologies to look at how do we advance medical countermeasures? Why, why isn't somebody developing the very best mask possible, which is breathable, but also filters out everything it needs to filter? Those are solvable problems. We haven't really kind of gotten the entire community mobilized to do that. So I think that it's a space that really needs further exploration and just we need a challenge here. Like what are, what are the best ideas? And we have something called EpiHacks, you know, hackathons for epidemiology. We should be doing these types of things nonstop. So I think there's a real opportunity to be able to bring in different communities to help in a focused way provide solutions to some of the challenges that we're currently facing. How can one find about all the Epi hackathons? Is there a website? I will find one for you and send it to you. There is somebody named Mark Smolinski who runs a foundation actually in uh, the Bay Area. He and his group have, have worked really hard over the last few years to, to push this space. InQtel, based in Washington, D.C., has done a lot of work on, on technology and, and epidemiology. We'll, we'll make sure we get the information to you. What are the novel and interesting ways you have seen technology play a role so far? Well, honestly, just the apps that are being put forward to help with contact tracing. They're not perfect. And there's a lot of challenge right now with, an, with adoption. I think that as we move forward, as we build better systems, as we make sure that the people are comfortable with the privacy limitations, I think those types of technologies are going to be critical. What motivates you? I can't answer that in five minutes. <laughs> um, events like the pandemic, the fact that there are threats out there to population health, that we can do a better job at being able to prevent, detect, and respond, and actually save lives. How do you allocate your time? <laughs> Not well. That's a hard question during the pandemic because everything is now pandemic. It's right now, it's everything from advising decision makers to trying to build new tools to coordinating the research to occasionally seeing my children. Which non-consensus views do you hold near 
and deer? Well, I don't know how non-consensus it is, but there is a lot of discussion right now around the need for new organizations, a new international health organization, a new pandemic organization within the U.S. government. I firmly believe that maybe we start with effectively allocating resources to the institutions that we already have and start with trying to strengthen the entities we currently have before we think about building brand new ones. What's the biggest trade-off in your professional existence? Family. I've had a couple of really exciting opportunities that have been presented to me over my career, which I had to politely decline because of trying to ensure that there was a balance in my life between spending time with my husband and my kids and and being able to contribute effectively to society. And I think that balance shifts as they've gotten older. Yeah, but I think that's a, that's a challenge that everybody in the world has, right? And I think everybody struggles with. What are you currently reading? It's not at all exciting. I'm starting to prepare for my course this fall and, and rethinking. So I'm just, I was just rereading sections of the history of global health, which is not, again, it's not, not exciting. But and some, and some chapters from a book we just published on viral sovereignty, that's the true answer of what I'm reading right now. Who are some of your favorite writers, pundits, or podcasters? I've adopted my father's favorite authors. And it's a way that I actually feel close to him since he's passed to, to, to reread the books that were his favorite. Don Barth and the Salt Wheat Factor was by far his favorite book. That's one that I actually go back to and, and read often. What projects are you currently working on? Well, uh, COVID AMP is the main project right now and trying to, to build that out. Uh, we have a paper that's launching this afternoon that I was able to contribute to with the Atlantic Council looking at global governance, as well as the Georgetown University this, this week released its reopening plan. So have been kind of lucky to have worked on that too. So it's, at this point, it's kind of all pandemic all the time. That's the way it goes these days. And how can listeners find out more about your work? Definitely our website is probably the best way. Someday I'll have like a marketing firm that'll help us rebuild it and tell our story better. But in the meantime, we're, we're doing our best to kind of keep it up to date. It's against ghss.georgetown.edu. And, and we try to at least capture all the, the publications that we have on there. We have a separate section on COVID, including a lot of work that many of our student RAs put together on how to the intersect between COVID and protests and how to stay as safe as possible during, before, during, and after, and links to a lot of our media hits over the last couple of months. But also under our work, it has the links to a whole bunch of the online tools that we have. And then Twitter. It's become kind of the, it's, uh, the work accounts and the way that we follow what's happening in the public health community. I am Rebecca Katz 5 It's not exciting, but it's, it's a, a handle that one of my students set up for me about 15 years ago. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management 
they may be associated with and thank you for listening